Amen. All right. So I was thinking about this today when I was remembering when I was in uh, eighth grade and I would take my algebra homework home uh, and had homework. You'd always come to that place where you would need your mom or your dad to help you with uh, your homework. You remember that? Those of you that we used to be kids and those that you are when you come home and you need to help with homework. And I remember at that time, my mom and my dad staring at uh, my Texas Instruments uh, uh, calculator, scientific calculator. And I remember the look on my dad's face as if he was staring at the instrument panel at NASA, you know? And so he would begin to try and help me with what was going on. He began to he- try and, and, and help me with this assignment in algebra. And uh, I, it was inevitable that he would come to that place where he would make a statement something like this. He would say, you know, son, they just don't teach algebra the way they used to. You ever heard that? And I remember thinking, my dad is a liar. And then I became a dad myself. And, and my fifth grader comes home with homework. Fifth grade homework, not algebra. All right, night this new invention called the calculator. I didn't pull out my slide rule or anything, you know. And he comes home and we're working on this project. And I'm looking at it going, I don't know how to do this. And I remember pulling out this statement. You know, son, they just don't teach math today. The way they used to. Right. (laughs) It's different numbers. Um, So I would sit down and I would say, okay, so let me show you how we did it. But dad, the teacher wants us to do it this way. Yes, I know, but let me show you how you could get. But dad, that's a different answer. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of realized that at this moment that um, it's funny about this different way, because honestly, it is true. Even today, they teach math, different strategies, different methods than it was done at other times, okay? Um, It's really true, which makes it kind of funny, all right? Um, But there's also a lot of liar in each of us because whether it's true or not, most of us, we just don't remember how to do it either way, right? And here's the thought with that. The method is only proven right when you eventually get to that same point. The, the method, okay, does not change the answer. Does it? If I could sit down and get to the same answer, my son would go, wow, you're really smart. But instead he's like, you're an idiot. Oh. Today we're teaching on uh, one of the most referenced uh, scriptures in the Bible when it comes to uh, formation of church structure. When it comes to how we're supposed to do church, because we're man and we've got it all figured out. We know how to do things. Um, so we're going to look at Acts chapter two, starting in verse 42, where a lot of people believe that it was church. And I believe it was church in the purest in really the purest form. It was most certainly church in the earliest form, the things that they valued and the things that they that they did and the way they existed. All right. And when I think about Austin New Church, and as I get to know each one of you have come in and begin to hear your stories, I've realized that some of us uh, have grown up in, a, in more of a, a typical Protestant church environment. I grew up Southern Baptist, all right? That some of us there, but what I've realized that most of us in this room did not. 
And that's encouraging to me because you're here. And, and what I've realized is some of you have come from a, a, a non-Protestant background. Some of you uh, have considered yourselves really kind of skeptics of church itself. Maybe come out of that. Maybe you would have considered yourself for a long time a skeptic of even faith. So maybe you're that way now and, and yet you just find yourself here and you're going, why am I even here? But you're here. I, I'm glad you're here. But so here's our starting point. Every one of us, we have some kind of baggage. Would you agree? Each of us. Um, we all have personal preferences, even outside of church. We do. Um, we all have biasness. We have different experiences. Many of us have really good experiences and almost all of us have really bad experiences too, both, you know, in life, in love and faith, the whole journey. And we all have opinions where regardless of how we think we should pursue certain studies and how, regardless of how we think we should teach and learn and apply scripture, maybe as especially as we think about formation of church in our context or in our world, in our neighborhood, in our uh, community, there's ultimately a foundation and a truth that is unchanged. So when we think about Acts chapter two and the structure of the church, what we'll find is it probably has less to do with whether or not there's this big church is right or this little church is right or all in between. It probably has a little less to do with whether or not traditional worship is the right way to do worship or contemporary worship is the right or, or even what we call now modern worship is the right. I think it has a little less to do with those things, but I think here's what we'll find in Acts two. And I want to give just as our big idea, we've tried to give like one big idea. If you hear something, will you kind of grasp onto this as then we look into the scripture, okay? Here's one big idea that I want to give for today that what I see in Acts 42 is that the early church survived and thrived by starting with the right attitude, which is a really big word, not by discovering the right model. It's not that they didn't have a model that they followed or whatever, a type of way that they did church. But it started with individuals who had the right attitude, the heart, and the right perspective. It was foundational before God, the right attitude before God, and the right attitude towards one another. All right? It started with the right attitude, not just discovering the right model. And here, I think, is the foundation for that selflessness. Now, wrapped up in a word like selflessness is love and benevolence and all of these attitudes, but it was really this selflessness. And we're going to see a lot of that over the next couple of weeks as we look at these few scriptures. And I was talking to Jen this morning about this, and I just said, you know what? I almost wonder if any model of church, if you and I were a part of something, all right, I don't, even if it was the wrong model, but if we all just were completely selfless and put God and others first, his gospel, his good news and love for one another first, if we would do that, I think we would see amazing survival and thriving. So I think the challenge for any church is to make sure that our search for the right model, that we don't allow the model to hijack the right attitude. 
and end up missing the point altogether. So here's a question. When we look at this scripture, I think we need to find the answer to, and it's kind of a, a, a question that we continue to come back to at Austin New Church as we're kind of starting this journey. When we look at scripture, is our attitude, do we look at scripture in such a way as we're trying to defend our model or our way of church that we're comfortable with, that we like? Are we trying to look at scripture to defend our model or to define our attitude? I, I got to be honest with you, most of my life, if, if, if I wanted to argue with you about the way I wanted to do church, I'd go find a scripture to support what I believed and I'd show it to you. Instead of just opening up God's word and said, God, speak to me on this topic. What do you want me to do with this? What do I need to do? How do I discover your truth in this? And I think the journey there begins with a willingness, as we've talked about the kingdom of God, the willingness for us to lay our will aside where we're saying, God, even if this goes against something that I've always thought or wanted to be true, that I'll lay that aside because I want to follow your will. Because it's really a question of our posture. Are we protecting what we've known or are we proclaiming what we know? And what do we know? What did the early church know? What did they know? Well, they knew that, as, that even among faith and hope, the scripture says that the greatest of these is love. We know that Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Scripture says, we know that Jesus said that every law hinges on love. This is what we know, that Jesus said the first will be last. And what we know is that somehow these realities should radically inform the why and the how we do church. So let's look at this scripture. Go ahead to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We spent the last several weeks, uh, verse 1 through 13 in chapter 2 deals with the Holy Spirit uh, coming at Pentecost. Verses 14 through 41 was Peter addressing the crowd and it ended with 3,000 people coming to faith on that day. And we pick up in 42 where they begin to talk about the formation of community. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Does that not just scare you to death a little bit? (laughs) We're gonna talk about next week how this might not be saying exactly what you're afraid of. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So as we talk today, I want to talk about attitude. I want to talk about attitude. Because when I look into the scripture all my life, I've seen from you know, structure and I've seen, well, this justifies how often you have small groups and how much you gather for worship. And when you do gather, it has to be these elements, you know, and all this stuff. And I'm looking and it's true. It's, it's what they did at that time. But I really want us to look in the scripture and look for the heart and the attitude of the people behind what they were doing. And I want to start by saying this, that the right attitude is going to change the way we view some things. 
And there are three things in this scripture. Just we're going to look at only verse 42 today. There are three things that I think that we'll see that the right attitude changes the way uh, we view these three things. And I think the first thing before we even give that list is, is we need to remember that these people were here and they were, um, they were thankful for what was going on. I think they were very thankful that for the cross and they were very thankful that they lived in a time that had been prophesied about for years and years and that they now lived in it and they really believed it because they saw it and they were excited about it and they knew their lives would never be the same. And I think they were very dependent. They were very desperate. They were very hungry for God and they were very thankful. And I think when it, when they had an attitude, I mean, they had an attitude of gratitude. If you really want to know where they were. And the right attitude changes the way you view three things. So you write these down on three points. They, in this scripture, the way we view, number one, endurance. Number two, doctrine. Maybe just, or the word teaching. And number three, the way they viewed community. Attitude changes everything. Maybe perspective is a good word to put in there as well. So let's look through this one sentence for the remainder of our time, and look into each one of those attitudes that were changed. The first one is the first part. It says they devoted themselves. I want you to take your pen if you got it and just circle or underline the word devoted. Do it in your Bible. Do it in your, note, in your notes, whatever you want to do. Just circle that. Draw a little arrow to the side. Okay, and I want you to write down two words next to it. Because this word devoted comes from two Greek, two Greek words. One that means continually and the other one that means steadfast. And this is important. In fact, I like the New American Standard version of this scripture because it says, instead of they devoted themselves to, it says they were continually devoting themselves to. Gives you a little bit, under, a little bit better understanding of, of what this is about. See, when I think about being devoted to something, I think, okay, yeah, I'm a devoted Dallas Cowboy fan. You know, I think that sells it a little short to what they really were. In that devotion, although I can't seem to shake them. So. So it's saying that they continually. Devoting were devoting themselves, they were continuously, continually steadfast translated. They were enduring together. They weren't just saying, "Okay, now I'm a fan of J.C. They were saying We look at this as something we must endure. We must continue. We must place our affections on and our attention to, and it's going to take effort. Translated endured. And when I think about enduring something, the reality is, is one of our greatest enemies to enduring is ourselves. Would you agree with that? Because we like to give up. Because we think, well, this is supposed to be easy now, so I'm just, oh, it's not? Okay, I give up. And we forget what Christ said, that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. I think that's why it's so important for us to overcome even ourselves in that. I think that's why Scripture tells us that we need to take up our cross daily, that we need to deny ourselves. I think that's why at the crux of the battle for God's kingdom breaking through is us allowing, us surrendering our will for his will. Remember, God reigns and his, his kingdom is where he reigns. 
I thought it was a great illustration. I heard one time a, a guy shared a story about uh, sitting on this plane next to this guy who had on all of this, these different kind of clothes. And it was obviously he was from a different country and, and, he, and he looked at him, if you remember, he looked at him and he began to have a dialogue and he found out that this guy was a king of a country. And he looked at him and, and he said, he said, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't help but ask, but do you have, do you have a crown? Do you wear a crown? And he's like, yeah, I do. He's like, well, why don't you, why don't you wear your crown? Why aren't you wearing your crown? And he said, because this is not my kingdom. He says, I have no authority here. I don't rule here. He said, where my king, where my kingdom is, is where I reign. Where God's kingdom breaks through is where he reigns in our lives. And we submit our will to his will. And this is a constant battle. I think it's important. So they were, they continuously, they continually were steadfast. They devoted themselves. They endured, keyword, themselves. You know, I, I really believe as a church, before we figure out this corporate thing, that we have to really focus on this personal thing too. Because I cannot make you. Husbands, your wife cannot make you. Wives, your your husbands can't make you. Did I just say that back and forth? You know what I'm saying? You, you have to devote yourselves. There has to be this search, this point where we commit ourselves. Devotion doesn't happen without effort. Endurance does not happen without effort. So I'll give you this thought about endurance. Endurance, the issues of endurance deals with being intentional, not accidental. We will not endure. We will not remain devoted. We will not stay committed if we are not intentional about staying devoted and committed to the things of Christ and to the values of Christ and the things that he told us to do. I think a better way to phrase this as I think back through the outline, I would rather say instead of doing this, not this, I would rather say moving from accidental to intentional as well as the rest of the outline. Being intentional, I think that's why Paul said, let us consider how we can encourage one another towards love and good deeds. That's why the scripture says, do not give up meeting with each other as some have come in the habit of doing because it takes this intentionality with one another. So they devoted themselves. And the next part, verse 46 says to, it says what they devoted themselves to, to the apostles teaching. If you have a different translation, it may say to the teaching or to the apostles doctrine. This verb that is used here is literally means the act of teaching. So this is what they were devoted to, not this guy up here teaching this scripture or this doctrine, but they were devoted to the action of the doctrine. See, their attitude was not just a devotion or a commitment to more information in their head that they were never going to do anything with. They were at a place in their journey where they realized we're not going to make it unless we learn how to apply these truths to our life. Until we really figure out how to live this out in our life. The purpose of this doctrine was application. And this is what they were 
devoted to. Endurance, being intentional, not accidental. Doctrine, to focus on application, not information. This was their attitude. They had no place, no need, no desire, no room, no waste of time to just get more information for the sake of knowledge. Their lives were being turned upside down, just like many of us right now. Our lives are literally being turned upside down, whether it's work, marriage, family, parenting. So many things going on. And they were just at that point where it was very natural. Talk about organic to just go, God, I got I to gotta put this to work in my life. I don't need useless head knowledge. And before they were even willing to do that, that they had the attitude of when it ha- when I learn it, I'm going to, I'm going to try it. I'm going to do it. And they moved from information to application of the doctrine. So kind of summarize that they were continually and intentionally being committed to the application of God's word. And scripture goes on and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I love this word fellowship. Underline that. Circle that. Put a little space aside where you can write three, three words. Because there's a threefold meaning. There's a under, and, and if you only give two of them, the, the word fellowship here is not complete. There's three ideas that encompasses this word for fellowship. In the, and the word is, is koinonia. Okay? That's the, that's the Greek word for it. And the three words to describe it are participation, distribution, and benefactor. Those are the three ideas of fellowship. Now, I grew up Southern Baptist, so fellowship to me meant potluck dinner. All right? Fellowship to me meant we were going to hang out and eat. That was Now, the funny thing is, is there's a little bit of biblicalness to that. Is that a word, biblicalness? Close enough. Um... But I did not understand what fellowship really meant. So one is that it is not something that you just go to, but it's something that you are participating in. Their attitude was that of being a participant. They realized they were neck deep in this new way thing. And there was no turning back. The participation of it. The second word, dis- distribution, the second two disturbed me a little this week as I was struggling with and wrestling with, but just this concept of, of everyone understanding as a body that we all play our part, that we, there's a role for each of us to play. I don't care if you are brand new to faith, if you're still searching for faith, if you're a veteran of faith, we all complete one another as part of the body. And that there's a concept of fellowship, meaning that it's dis- distributed amongst the body. And this third one is the one I really struggled with, the benefactor. Because I think we don't struggle with that. <laughs> we just want to benefit. Tell me, how's God going to bless my life? How am I going to get, oh, God bless America. We could all have bigger houses and nicer cars and everything else. And then God's blessed us, right? Because we're, we're going to benefit from this. When God is my life, when am I no longer going to struggle with sin? Now, perfect. When is everything going to be rose petals? And But it actually says there's a benefactor of fellowship. And I began to think about this in a corporate sense. With many of you have a better understanding of the corporate sense than I do. So I may butcher this, but 
When I think about being a benefactor of something that's worth value, maybe an organization, I, I just can't look at that and think that they would measure success solely on whether or not that benefactor got made money. I feel like the attitude would have to be, the goal would be that the mission would succeed or the product would work or whatever it may be, that the goal would be that the mission would succeed and the result of that would be benefit back to those who were benefactors. And this is telling us that in the concept of fellowship, that when we truly become participants instead of just observers, when we truly realize that there is a distribution of gifts in the body and and maybe just experiences and history that we can speak into and that we could grow. To. When we do that and that mission begins to move forward, we all benefit from that. And it's from the word koinonos, which means partner. So it's saying that they are in this fellowship, that they were committed to it, that it was hard and it got ugly at times and it hurt and someone probably cried and someone probably felt taken advantage of and it was difficult and they continually remained steadfast for that mission because they didn't just look at it, at it as something they went to they looked at it as something they were a partner in something way bigger than they ever dreamed of. So they were devoted, they were committed to the teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, which is symbolic for many things. One, obviously, of communion in the cross, the other of this fellowship, the potluck dinner at the fellowship hall after training union on Sunday night. I can tell you're not Southern Baptist. I love that that didn't make sense to most of you. Doesn't that sound boring? Sorry. And to prayer, which this word prayer comes from, not just supplication to ask God humbly, which is an attitude. This really means to ask of God, to request of God with a humble heart, with a humble attitude, knowing that we are not worthy, he is, and we are not capable, and he is, to have that, but also an attitude of worship. So these were the things, these were the attitudes, endurance from intentional, from accidental to intentional uh, doctrine and teaching from just information to application and community from just a consumer to a partner in what was going on. Um, there, there's a lot of, um, I've, I've been a part of different churches and I know you guys have and maybe you've seen where this um, partnership idea is a, is a strange thing. And, and I've been asked before, well, well, what's the deal with membership at Austin New Church? And I'm just, I'm kind of to the point where I just don't like the word member. Because <laughs> like I'm a member at a gym, you know, and I go there sometimes and um, they serve me. You know, and and uh, I, I know there are people who are members of Country Club and and if you know, you need to bring my golf cart to me or I'm going to tell your boss, you know, and I'm like, well, what is the benefit of being a member at a church? What is the benefit of that? 
I, I get a vote on the budget. Um, that's okay. That's important. What, I mean, why are we, and, and I see there's so many churches where they're running hundreds of people, but their membership are thousands and ten thousands of people. And, and you ask somebody from that church, say, well, how many people uh, go to your church? Well, we have a membership of 2000. And it's like, well, that's not what I really asked you, but there's this thing about our, our mind and our attitude where we put the focus on the wrong thing sometimes. And as we move forward as a church, we want to talk more about this concept of partnership together. That we're in this together. That we have benefit together as we serve together and as we think about one another, not just ourselves. We um, are going through a study, most of you know because you're doing it as well, uh, called the Tangible Kingdom Primer in our Restore Communities, our community groups. And it really is, it's an eight-week study just talking about living on mission as a church, being a sent people. This idea that we've heard about, but we don't really know what it means. This idea of being a sent people on mission to try and live as believers, actually live as believers in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our schools to be able to do this. And a discussion our group came to last Wednesday went something like this. Um, as we learn this stuff, how should this impact how we structure our group from here forward? How should it impact? How should it inform what we do in this time? And the answer was, we didn't know exactly how that would be formed yet, but the answer was it should absolutely inform everything. That the heart and the attitude should absolutely inform everything that we do. So I want to close with this scripture from Philippians chapter 2. And this is my prayer for our church. And this is, um, I believe, God's word for us. And I pray that we would receive this and that we would hear this and we would be so excited about it. And then we'll continue where we left off next week. It says in verse 1 of Philippians 2, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's a question. What if we did that? Not obedient to death on a cross, unless God called us some to reason that. But what if this was, what if this was our heart and attitude? What if each one of us, as we're searching out what God wants us, our lives to look like and our journey to look like, and we think about our relationships and how we live in our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces. What if we just decided to allow this truth that, that we're being called to, to radically transform the way we lived? 
could we trust God with that? Really? Do you think he really knows what he's doing? (laughs) Man, I think sometimes we just don't trust him enough. I think we need to get past the point of saying, does he really want us to do that? Is he speaking metaphorically or whatever? No, he, I think he really, really wants us to pursue that and seek that. 